All right, so Acts chapter 2, we are having some uh, video projector challenges today, so you're going to have to go old school, open up your paper Bible or your app on your phone if you need to do that. Um, but to set a little context, t- context for the book of Acts, and you may want to jot this down, um, I had a really nice slide actually, and typically I just have the scripture verses. This time I ha- actually had some content beyond that, of course. Um, but to, to help us understand where the book of Acts lands in God's big picture story in his word, um, you'll hear many different authors or um, Bible, Bible study guides, commentators that will talk about how do you, you know, what is the big picture story of Scripture? Um, I, like to, I like the one that looks at the Bible as six acts of a play, okay? Now, I, I think there are people who read this book as if it's God's personal love letter to me. And when you read it that way, there's a lot that doesn't apply. So you find yourself going, yeah, I don't, I'm not getting anything out of here. Oh, here's a good one. You know, I will bless you and prosper you and, and increase your territory. You know, nothing, nothing. Oh, here's a good one. That's not a really good way to read this book because it's not primarily God's personal love letter to you as an individual. Now that message is within God's word. He is a loving God. He does love you as an individual. It's just if you read it as if that is the big picture story of Scripture, you're going to miss the point. So really, um, the, the story is of the good creator God who creates all things good for his good purposes and then sin messes that plan up and then the good creator God restores his original plan. That's basically, in a nutshell, the big picture story of Scripture. And if you were to convey that in six acts, really, you would um, act one would be creation, Genesis 1 and 2. That's God establishing his kingdom. Act 2 of the play, curtain falls on act 1, Act 2 comes up, and that's the fall, Genesis chapter 3. That's rebellion in the kingdom of God. Act 3 is redemption begins. The king chooses Israel. So the king, again, the good creator, sin mess set up. God chooses to use Israel as his chosen people to begin that process of redemption, which means getting back to his original plan. Act 4 is now, so from Genesis 4 all the way to the end of the book of Malachi is Act 3, the whole Old Testament. All the Mosaic Law, God's covenant with Abraham, David, the nation of Israel, their history, their journey of faith, faithlessness and faithfulness, unfaithfulness and obedience, and that whole uh, process that they have of leaving captivity and following God and then having their hearts chase after foreign gods, that's all within Act 3 of the king choosing Israel. Then we get to the New Testament. We turn the, turn the page on Act 3. We open Act 4 with redemption accomplished, the coming of the king. That's King Jesus. And so that's really within the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now the book of Acts comes right after Act 4 in this play, this grand narrative of what, of what God is doing within history. This is now Act 5, the church's mission. And this is the act that we're living in today. So our our mission really is spreading the news of the king. That's the church's mission. That begins right after uh, the end of the Gospels, right after the Gospel of John, and we get into all the, uh, the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament books that 
give us really God's heart for us as his people, the church, now proclaiming the news about the king until Acts 6 arrives. And that's what we are awaiting. That's redemption completed when the king returns. Now this helps us locate ourselves within history, but also as we go to God's word to know what's going on in the book of Acts. People like to argue about the book of Acts. And uh, they will ask, is the book of Acts historical or is it normative? Okay, so those are the two ar- arguments that people like to have. So is, this, is the book of Acts just something that we study from a detached, objective perspective, kind of the bird's eye view, and say, okay, well, this is what was happening in the early church, doesn't really apply to us. Or is it normative? In other words, are the things that we find in the book of Acts normal for us to practice as well? You know, when you start looking at individual events within the book of Acts, you're going to, you know, that question will become relevant. Like, you know, should we cast lots to replace a leader as they did, uh, you know, with Matthias replacing Judas? Um, Should we, you know, strike someone dead when they pretend like they sold a a chunk of land and brought all the money to church, but they only brought a part of it, like they did with Ananias and Sapphira? Um, should we expect to have tongues of fire appearing on people's heads and speak in all the languages spoken around our region as they did here in Acts chapter 2? So that question of historical or normative, you can see why that is something that people like to debate. Um, My answer on that is, it's complicated. It's messy. It's a little bit of both. And I would say it is normative, but it requires interpreting. And so I think the best way to read any passage of Scripture is to begin by asking, what did it mean to them? And then to ask, what does it mean to us? Okay? It doesn't mean something different, but there's a way that a story that happened back then applies to us. It would be a mistake to read this as God's personal love letter to me because that skips that first step. And it skips context and and history and all the background information of understanding what does this text mean to that original audience, to the people who were actually involved at that time. But it would also be a mistake to say to say this is not normative. Any any section of this book is not normative, as if we could study it in some detached way where we don't enter into the story. The thing about God's story is that it demands us to enter in as well. And so I would say it's both historical and normative. And it takes some work and there's a lifelong of a journey of becoming and praying and having God's spirit illuminate his word to us and we should expect to be transformed as we come to his word together. Uh, the little town that we moved here from in Minnesota had a community college that offered a class called the Bible as History, Literature, and Philosophy. Secular, public school, Uh, community college and you've got someone teaching this class so I thought I would like to teach that class and I went and met with the uh, the person who who hires all the adjunct profs and I said you know I've got I've got some uh, here's my here's my credentials Um, I live right here in town instead of having somebody drive two hours up from the Twin Cities to teach this class why don't you uh, have me teach it next time and he's like kind of looking at me. He's like, oh, oh thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Never got a call. I think at a community college, they would like to read the Bible in that sort of detached way where this is, you know, we can, we can um, you know, look at, look, peruse this book for some historical tidbits. 
you know? Maybe we can dig up something archaeologically and then find a reference in here that, that affirms or supports that, that hard artifact that we have. It's a, it's a historic book, historical book. Or maybe it's literature, you know? Not that any of this applies to us, but we can evaluate the genres and look at how, oh, the composition and how the story weaves together in a detached literary critic sort of a way. Or philosophically, well, you know, the mindset of the first century people, this is how they perceive things. People like to distort God's word in that way and take this high ground of detached objectivity kind of rationalism. But that's not the story that we are invited to enter into today as we go to God's word and to the book of Acts in particular. We as believers, we come perceiving this book as the true story of everything. And when we come and we hear about the the story in six acts, it affects us personally. Act one, there is a creator God who makes all things good, including you and I in his image. Act two, there is a sin problem. We actively participate in that sin problem, you and I, and it affects us. Act three, God has chosen a people to begin that plan of redemption. Act four, there is one who has come to complete that redemption perfectly, his life, his death, his resurrection. He's the one that we call our Savior, our Lord, our King. Act five, what's our job? And we go to the book of Acts, we're gonna find out today what is that mission that God has, not just for the church back in the first century, not just a a literary evaluation today, but what is God calling us to do? Who is he calling us to be? And my prayer today is that we will be like the couple at the end of Luke's gospel in chapter 24, walking on that road to Emmaus, and they have an encounter with the risen Savior. And at the end of that encounter, in Luke 24, they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Let's make that our prayer today as we anticipate God meeting us through his word. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of what you are doing in history and in our lives. Thank you that we're a part of the story, that we have a part to play, that you're the director calling out our lines, calling out where we are to be on the stage that you have set. And today we give you our hearts with humility. We pray that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see today. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get to Acts, we need to look at the very end of the Gospels. Because really, the commission that Jesus gives to his church begins there at the end of the fourth act, the coming of the king, his redemption accomplished. It's contained within each of those gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as Jesus gives his last words to his followers. His last words, and then there's the ascension, where Jesus leaves uh, the realm that humans dwell in, and he enters this realm where God exists, heaven. And so there in each of the Gospels, Matthew puts it this way, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Lots of action verbs there in Jesus' last words recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach, And there's also an element of 
mission contained within that command that Jesus gives in his last words to his disciples. A group of Jewish men. What does he say? Go and make disciples where? All nations. Now that's going to be very important as we turn to the book of Acts. This is a major debate going on in the first century church which begins with Jewish converts. So they had come to Jesus via Judaism and all that comes along with Judaism. The Old Testament, the special days, the special feasts, circumcision. And so now as they come to Jesus and now you know, they're willing to accommodate and make room for these non-Jewish followers of Jesus, but in their mind quite often, they're saying, you know, we came through Judaism to Jesus These pagan Gentiles need to come to Jesus through Judaism just like we did. So they're wanting to have Jesus plus something. Jesus plus some circumcision. Jesus plus uh, some Old Testament Mosaic law. Some of that tradition. And so this becomes an issue there for the early church. But it's clear as Jesus is closing the curtain on this redemption accomplished phase of history, and now he's lifting the curtain on the commission to the church, which includes you and I, all nations is there in Matthew 28. So there's a need for us to get on board with what the king has commanded us to do. Go and make disciples of all nations. Mark puts it this way in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Once again, it's a comprehensive message of good news to everyone. It's all inclusive. It includes every tongue, tribe, and nation. Just as we see at the end of the story, when the king returns, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow before him. And people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be gathered together before the throne. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And then there in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, beginning in verse 47, Jesus says this in his last words recorded there in Luke's gospel. Ma'am, could you keep that baby down a little bit there? Okay, thank you. It's my kid, if you didn't know. Okay. Repent, I think, I think Ariel's excited about this passage in Luke, so let's go. Luke 24. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, Luke and Acts are actually one book together, okay? So, so it'd be really good for you as we're going through the book of Acts over the, over the summer weeks here that you would also read Luke's gospel because they tie right into one another. Luke-Acts. And so here in Luke's gospel, there are uh, some words recorded of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we're gonna see now fulfilled as we turn to the book of Acts. Luke part two, as it were. And so Jesus is promising that there's a gift, there's a a sending of a promise of the Father that's coming. Wait in the city, get ready, something big is happening. The curtain is going to be lifted on a whole new phase of being the people of God. Get ready, prepare yourself. 
for this power that God is going to clothe you with. The good news should be proclaimed where? Again, to all nations. There it is again. Beginning in Jerusalem. And then don't overlook that little verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. It's easy to just kind of gloss over that. You are the ones that are called to testify about this good news. You are the ones who are called to proclaim and tell what you have seen and heard. You are the ones who are called to present the true story of everything to the people who are walking in darkness, to the crooked generation that's bent in the wrong way and they're confused and they're hopeless and they're desperate. You are witnesses to the truth. And that's Jesus now giving this commission to his people, which includes you and I. So of all these instructions and commands and imperatives, there's a major do this that's directed by Jesus to his followers in the first century and in the 21st century today. And yet it's not just one of these you ought to, you should, you need to do it. There's also the equipping and the empowerment that is needed to fulfill that call. And that's what Jesus promises as he says, hey, I'm giving you a big, a big challenge. You need to proclaim the good news to all nations. Make disciples. Go. But I'm going to give you the power you need. I'm going to give you my word so you know what the truth is. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit to be with you and in you. You've got the owner's manual. You've got the resources. You've got the power. You have the king himself with you on this mission. It's not one of these kings that just sits back in the palace and sends you out. He goes with you and accompanies you on that journey by his spirit. And so the call and the encouragement to us is to hear the king's instructions Get on board with his mission. Receive that power that he's given us. Obey. And then use those tools that he gives us as we enter into the story. Who's the person that God has put in your life? That you work with, that you're a neighbor to? And maybe that conversation has led right to that point of presenting the gospel. And each time you've held back because of fear of inadequacy, Maybe you'll say something wrong. Maybe you won't have the right answer. Or maybe there's a a past time in your life when you were rejected as you talked about Jesus to somebody. Maybe you've lost your first love. And right now you're just dry, just not that excited about serving Jesus. Well, I hope today as we get to the exciting story in the book of Acts, you've got some of that joy back and you've got some of that courage back and you know it's not your smarts, your tongue, your ability to formulate things just correctly, but it's really the power of the Holy Spirit working through you that brings good news to people like your neighbor or your coworker or your classmate or that family member that really is stuck in darkness. God wants to use you to bring them to his truth. So let's obey and let's enter in. If you have felt like that, you're not unlike the early church that we're going to encounter now as we get to the book of Acts. Before we get to chapter 2, uh, there's some, some uh, context there in chapter 1 that we'll just touch on. 
So Jesus, again, as we're now in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has some last words again recorded here. Now the, it's as if the curtain is now lifting on Act 5. And there's a little bit of recap of what we've seen at the end of Act 4 in Luke's gospel in particular. So Jesus says here in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is the promise that Jesus had foretold there in Luke chapter 24. Baptism is an initiation, an identification with. Uh, there were many Jewish sects in the first century. You could be an Essene, you could be a Pharisee, you could be a Sadducee, you could be a follower of Jesus. And whichever Jewish sect you were a part of, baptism was a part of identifying with, being initiated into, beginning a process of following this way of serving God. And Jesus is saying there's going to be a new initiation. There's going to be a new identification with. And it's going to tie you as individuals and as a group of those who are called, tie you to the king's mission, which is to proclaim the king to every tongue, tribe, and nation. So there will be a baptism that occurs as the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It won't be going down to the Jordan River and getting dunked by John the Baptist. It's going to be in a whole new way where God himself comes and impacts each one of you and empowers you for that mission. The disciples are really not on board with this Act 5 mission. Okay? Uh, they're, they're, not, they're not tracking with Jesus at this point. And so they ask a question that really demonstrates their lack of awareness as to what the church's mission is. Or, you know, really, this is the beginning of the church, so you can't blame them too much. We're still wondering what the church's mission is, and we've been doing it for a couple thousand years, right? So they, they ask Jesus in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus, are we going back to Act 3? Or Jesus, can we skip ahead to Acts 6 where you just come and fully establish your kingdom now? And Jesus is like, guys, there's a lot more of history to be uh, unfolded and you're going to be a part of it. You get to proclaim the king to every tongue, tribe, and nation. So Jesus says, says it this way, answers their question. It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Guys, there is an Act 5. It has to do with the mission of the church. It involves you. So before the king returns, there's some work for you to do. You will have the power you need for that work because the Holy Spirit is going to come and equip you to be a witness for the king. So when it's that time to open up your mouth and proclaim the good news, you're not just doing it in your own strength. The king will be with you and in you, give you the words that you need at that moment. Where are you going to do that? In the city that you live in, Jerusalem. In the region that you live in, Judea both Jewish areas. And now, prepare to have your minds blown. You will be witnesses of King Jesus 
in this neighboring Gentile region called Samaria, filled with people that you have historically despised because they're mixed race. So you Jewish people, you know, you, you think you're a little bit more pure than everybody else and these Samaritans, they're kind of a mixture of some Jewish background, some pagan religion mixed together. When you've traveled, you've avoided that whole region altogether. Jesus himself had to tell the story of the good Samaritan to begin to break down some of these attitudes and hearts. Well, when the Holy Spirit comes, remember, God's mission is all nations. And the Holy Spirit's going to empower you and enable you to have that same heart beating within you. You will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and, yes, in Samaria and even to the ends of the earth where there's not even some syncretism between Judaism and paganism. It's just raw paganism out there in some of these places. That's where God is going to use you to bring good news. So get ready. And at the end of that story, Jesus is like, that's all I got for you guys. I'm going into heaven. And he ascends. And the guys are just standing with their mouths open. And the angel comes, says, guys, are you going to stand around here? Jesus is going to come back, but you've got some work to do, so get ready, go. Now we get to Acts chapter 2. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. So far, so good. They're obeying, right? Stay in the city until you receive power from on high. They're together. The day of Pentecost, by the way, was a Jewish festival which celebrated and commemorated God's meeting with his people at Mount Sinai. So after they'd been delivered from 430 years of captivity in Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, they now arrive at Mount Sinai and God gives chisels from his own hand the first covenant, the Ten Commandments, gives them to Moses. Pentecost was the, was the festival to celebrate that first law giving. So is it a coincidence that now it's on the day of Pentecost that God is now really initiating this new covenant? That the, the church is entering into this new phase, the curtain is lifting on Act 5? There's no coincidence. In fact, we'll see some of those parallels between Exodus and Acts 2 in just a moment. So they're gathered together and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now let's pause there for a moment because there's a lot of parallels to what happened at that first law giving in Exodus 19. Let me just read one paragraph So we can now enter into that story back in Act 3 as God had chosen Israel as his people and he's laying out this Mosaic covenant. You'll hear some of that, those same uh, symbolism of the sound of weather, fire being present just like we saw here in Acts 2. So listen in in, uh, Exodus 19. They're at Mount Sinai. Here's the experience in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. 
and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. We're really seeing God moving in a very similar way to that Act 3 recorded in Exodus 19. Once again, there's a new covenant that God is establishing with his people. It's a covenant not of the law, but of the Spirit. It's not a covenant with an entire nation, fire and smoke and detached, but now it's very personalized. The fire is on every head in the room. There's that sound of thunder in Exodus, of a mighty rushing wind here. Something very unexpected is happening in Jerusalem. Now listen to what happens next. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. In other words, these are not languages that they've taken in school. They haven't studied these languages. The Holy Spirit is enabling them to speak in these languages. And here's what happens with those languages that they're able to speak. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What were, what were Jesus' last instructions at the end of the Gospels that we just saw? Go, make disciples, proclaim good news. Where? All nations. God is moving in a new way. Here at the beginning of the book of Acts, this is the act that we are living in today. The curtain is still up. We are the ones on stage. This generation is the one on the stage right now. And just as God initiated this act by pouring out his Holy Spirit on each person present so that they would have the power to be witnesses, even crossing linguistic barriers to present the good news, to proclaim the mighty works of God in a way that is comprehensible to the hearer. God is still pouring out his spirit today. He's still calling and equipping and using people like you and I. He even works in miraculous, mighty, powerful ways to this day. 
Does that mean you shouldn't study a foreign language? You should say, God, you know, I'll take it that way. Forget the Rosetta Stone. Forget the Duolingo app. If you could just download it directly so that I can, in this moment, proclaim your mighty deeds in a language that this other person understands, that would be awesome. I believe that God can still do that. I also think he rewards diligence. So use the tools that God has given you. Study. Be prepared to present the gospel in whatever context he places you in. Jesus' promise is now fulfilled. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. What's the reaction of, the, of those people now from every Every nation, they're hearing the language. Is there a mass revival that sweeps out? Well, not quite yet. But here's what happens. It's, it's mixed reviews. Despite the, the tongues of fire appearing on people's heads, despite the sound of the mighty rushing wind, despite all these people speaking in languages they've never studied, it's still mixed reviews. The seed falls on a variety of soil, people's hearts. Verse 12, it says, All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? So that was a universal response. But then in verse 13, But others mocked, saying, They're filled with new wine. These guys are drunk. Probably the people who didn't speak the languages that were being spoken. To them it sounded like mumbo-jumbo. And so they were unaware of what was really happening. So then Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon that I'd encourage you to read, really the center of Acts chapter 2. We won't have time this morning to work through it. But he brings in quotations from the book of Joel in the Old Testament. He brings in some psalms and he says that this, everything we've anticipated has now been fulfilled. God's spirit is being poured out on all flesh, young and old, male and female. God is working in a new way. The curtain has been raised. Redemption has been accomplished. Good news is being proclaimed. Get ready. Get on board. Get on the stage. Be in the game. Peter is explaining and giving some context to all that has happened. Before we get to the end of his sermon and the end of Acts 2, I think it's important for us as a church to evaluate where are we in terms of God's kingdom mission in this earth? God's heart is not just for that first century church, that they would go into all the world and proclaim good news to all creation. That's a command given to us as well as his people. In fact, on the back of your bulletin, we have our goals as a church listed out. What is value number four for the way church? It says right there, we aspire to be ethnically diverse. In light of what we've studied thus far, do you think that's a good value? That's a really good value. That is a value that God has for us as a church. That people from all nations will worship the king. I guess the question is, what are we doing about it? Are we receiving that power from the Holy Spirit? Are we those who are proclaiming the mighty works of God? to people who don't speak the same language as us, may not have the same skin tone, may not come from the same uh, economic background as we do, 
may not even cheer for the same NFL team, may not give a rip about the NFL. Do we have the ability to cross cultural barriers on a mission from God so that his kingdom mission is accomplished in this earth? And I think that begins with humility, with hearing the king, and then with getting on board with his mission. Uh, You know, I don't know about your neighborhood, but I know that our neighborhood is ethnically diverse. We have an opportunity to apply this teaching with our neighbors right next door. And by God's grace, we're looking for those opportunities and building those relationships, preparing to proclaim in a way that's comprehensible to the hearers. Because this is God's heart, and it's our values as a church family. Let's be doing something about it. Who's the person that God is putting on your heart? You know, there are parts of the world that you and I, with our passport, could never safely travel to. And so God has brought residents of those nations right to our doorstep. And we have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to people who are from very dangerous parts of the world if you are a Christian from the U.S. But it's really safe right here to do that and to bring good news. And so rather than having fear or hatred or ethnocentrism, says everybody needs to be like me and sound like me and think like me, to get outside of what makes me comfortable as we tap into God's Holy Spirit power to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Peter summarizes for the hearers that day the Old Testament prophecies pointing forward to the Messiah, to the outpouring of God's Spirit, to what God is doing to establish his kingdom. And at the end comes the the application, as every good preacher should do. So there at at the end of his sermon, Peter wraps it up this way in verse 36, Acts 2, 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's preaching to Jews and converts to Judaism from every background there in the Roman Empire, in the known world. And now he's saying Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Lord. And you crucified him. Just a simple gospel presentation. No PowerPoint. No functional projector that that day. Just the simple truth that Jesus is the king. Not complicated And listen to the response of the hearers in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Why did it hit home for them? Was it because Peter was such an eloquent orator? He just had a way of packaging things in a way that would just move people emotionally? No. His, his message was very simple. He's saying, here's, here's what, how the Old Testament has been fulfilled. Jesus is the king. What was it that caused that cutting to the heart of all these Jewish hearers that day and that response, what shall we do? Well, that was the power of God's Holy Spirit working. That, this is what happens when 
Jesus' promise in Acts 1.8 is fulfilled in an obedient follower. You will receive power to be a witness. And as you are faithful to open your mouth and you receive that power of the Holy Spirit and you're faithful to open your mouth and proclaim God is at work. It's not your fancy argument, not your persuasion. It's God's Holy Spirit at work that will cause people to respond as the the soon-to-be new converts did here in verse 37. Brothers, what shall we do? And so Peter says, okay, altar call time. Here we go, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, this is a movement that gets contagious. As someone experiences forgiveness, as someone is baptized into the name of Jesus, initiated into him, identifying with him, saying, I'm a part of that Jesus follower gang, then they get the Holy Spirit and they get to proclaim. And it goes viral. That's what Peter is saying to them. In fact, it will even ripple out to affect your whole family. Verse 39, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. As you proclaim it, again, it's not you deciding this person is going to receive the gospel. God's Holy Spirit is filling you, empowering you, and leading you to the people that he has called himself. So we're seeing here in Acts 2, verse 39. So that should give you confidence. You know, when you look at that person who looks different than you, you know, maybe it's a, a burly guy with some tattoos and a great big long beard driving a Harley. And it's not Larry Hobbs. And you're going, really? I don't even know if I should, I don't know if it's safe to talk to this guy. And yet there's this feeling that you've got. There's a burning within you. There's a, an unction to, by the Holy Spirit to go and proclaim gospel to this person who looks very different than you dresses differently than you, has different interests, maybe smells a little funny. And so you're faithful to open up your mouth and proclaim the Holy Spirit works through you and you find out at the end of it, God was actually drawing that person to himself. You just happen to be the lucky person that he chose that day, the blessed person that he chose to use. And now you get to celebrate one who was lost coming into his kingdom and following after him. The promise, it's for you, it's for your children, it's for those who are far off. And then uh, verse 40, with many other words, and I just take that as, as encouragement to a preacher, just go for it. You know, many other words. Some of you got that, others just, okay. Long-winded sermons there. Thank you, Mike, for laughing politely. He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. There are two realities. Those who acknowledge Jesus as the Lord and King and those who are bent in the wrong direction, serving self, still stuck in Genesis 3, under the curse and under shame and, and the, the uh, enslavement of sin. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Don't go along with the pattern of the world. Reach those who are stuck in that rut. 
And so verse 41, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's some church growth right there. Let's wrap up the chapter here, verses 42 through 47, as we close today. And they devoted themselves, listen to the, now the, the lifeblood of that early church as they're fulfilling the king's mission for them. Again, is this history or is this normative? Both. This is what happened, but there's a lesson in here for us as to how we are to be as his people. How do we relate to one another? How do we live in Christian community? Listen to what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, eating food together, and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, being in each other's homes, prayer, seeing God move in powerful ways, togetherness, sharing, gratitude, generosity, worship, favor, and growth that God brings. These are the characteristics that define and describe that early church, God's people, on mission from God to proclaim good news to every tongue, tribe, and nation, empowered by his spirit. Later in Acts, we're going to find out together as we go through uh, this book, there were problems that came. But right now we have an idyllic picture of the mission of the church. That's where we're left at the end of Acts 2. There's about to come um, debate, dissension, persecution. The reality of this Act 5 that we're in, awaiting the king's return. It's messy. It's complicated. You know, the, the utopian ideal of having all of your Christian brothers and sisters in your home breaking bread together is offset by the reality of, you know, like having to clean the house before and after and cook food and maybe have an unpleasant conversation with one of us, step on each other's t- toes and reconcile and forgive. And we're going to see some of that played out in the book of Acts. There's a message here in Acts 1 and 2 for both individuals and for the collective people who are called by God, the church. Individuals are called to receive power. Those tongues of fire descended on every head, every individual in the room. A very different way of God interacting with his people at this time in history than the Old Testament picture of God's spirit at work. The promise is for you, for your children, and for those who are far off. So you are a part of this work of God. You are on this mission. You as an individual will find out in Paul's letters, you are given a gift by God's Spirit 
to glorify God and to edify the body, to build it up. Individuals matter to God. But then there's also a message to us as his people, as the church, to be the church. Be the called out ones. Be the gathered followers of King Jesus. And the instruction to save yourself from this crooked generation. There's a call to us to live differently. To be salt and light. To be like a city on a hill. Not hiding that light that God has given to us, but being light for all to see. Showing them a picture of what it is to follow King Jesus. And I think those actions there at the end of Acts 2 really typify what is it to be salt and light. We're called to spread the news of the king using both our proclamation and our actions. And he will give us the power that we need. So can we as a church family respond to that today as we go to him in prayer? Can we as individuals say, God, I want that power in my life to proclaim your truth? Why don't we go to him together in prayer as we close today? Let's stand. God, we thank you that you are at work within the hearts of individuals and within our church and the other churches here in our region. Thank you, Lord, that your, your mission has never changed. It's that all will know that Jesus is the King. Thank you that your work of redemption was completed on the cross. Thank you that we get to be a part of that redemption story being spread and proclaimed to those who have not yet heard. God, today we come like humble clay in the potter's hands saying, God, shape us form us, make of us as individuals a vessel that you can use for your glory. Fashion us as a church to be a people that you can flow through and work through. God, we pray that that goal from the back of our bulletin would not just be something we aspire to, but it would be something that we accomplish by the power of your spirit and to your glory. That we would be a house of prayer for all nations that we would reach those who are far off, people who do not yet know the king, no matter what linguistic, ethnic, racial, economic, political background that they come from, that we could all gather together because of the finished work on the cross. That there would be those who, because of their interaction with individuals in this room and with our church, would come to King Jesus and hear the good news proclaimed. Lord, give us those opportunities this week, we pray. Make it clear that you are the one drawing people to yourself and calling us to be on board with that mission. And then, Lord, we just receive that power of the Holy Spirit that you've promised to all who belong to you. We ask, God, that you would be the one who empowers us to witness, that you'd give us both the opportunity and the power that's needed that we would see lives transformed for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you.